Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Homestand, the official podcast of the Kansas City Royals. I'm your host, Carrie Lipper Gillespie, and I am so excited to be welcomed today by our guest, Royals alumni and current Royals broadcaster, Jeremy Guthrie. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Great how to be it, here. How does it sound to hear that? Current Royals broadcaster. Feels good. I yeah. love it. We have such a great team. The guys have been so much fun to be with. And the fans are fun. The guys on the team are incredible. So it just feels like you're back part of the Royals family after, you know, a sabbatical for six seasons. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that. But first, we want to start by getting to know you a little bit more. You are from Oregon and you live. Am I saying it right? Oregon, Oregon. Tell me how you say it. Definitely Oregon. Oregon. Not not Oregon. Okay. You never know. No, you do know. It's Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) You do know. Yep. I'm back in Oregon. My family and I, we live in Portland. My wife is from Portland and I'm from a small town called Ashland on the Southern border. Okay. And so uh, we're up North. My parents are still about four hours away from us. And it's a beautiful state. Very like if you're an outdoorsy person, like I've actually never been there, but um, I see pictures and I'm like, is this, is this the coast of Ireland? Like it's beautiful there. It's the most beautiful. That's one of the reasons we want to be back. We love the people, but we really love the climate and the just the mountains and everything about it. So it is as nice of a place as you could ever go visit. Besides Kansas City. Yes, besides Kansas City. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what you were like as a child. Were you always athletic or did you have other hobbies and interests? I read that you were an Eagle Scout. I was an Eagle Scout. Uh, my dad asked us that we get our Eagle Scout before we get our license. So if we got our Eagle Scout award, then he would help us get a car. He sold used cars, so cars were not the issue. The license were. And so I was an Eagle Scout. My project was to build bookshelves for disadvantaged children in the elementary school. And we gave them to them as Christmas gifts. Oh. And uh, it was really touching. I remember the kids, you know, you thinking as you're doing it like, uh, are they going to really love a bookshelf? But somehow that was the idea presented to us by the school that we did it for. And when they got their bookshelves, they were just hugging them and like, well, don't knock them over. But they were every bit as tall as the children. And who knows, maybe they have their books on it. They had their names on the side of the bookshelf. So that was one of the rewarding things that I did in my scouting life, or my scouting program. You got it before you were 16. It, I've always thought that they get it when they're like a senior in high. Is that early to get it? No, actually, I actually got it when I was 16 and a half, which is kind of late. Okay. A lot of kids get it earlier than early, earlier and earlier each yeah. time. Um, it's not uncommon to find a 13, 14 year old that has achieved their Eagle Scout award. Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah. For all of you that don't know, the Eagle Scout is the highest honor of Boy Scouts. And it really is like a big project that you undertake. You like choose what you're going to do. And it's a big honor. Like not a lot of people go through and all the way to the top. So it's a big honor. Yeah, you learn a lot of skills. You have to earn merit badges. So yeah. you might learn it, earn a merit badge on personal finance, first aid, camping, Uh, national citizenship is one of the ones I earned. And then you have to earn other ranks by doing particular things. Mostly it's things for other people. It's serving other people, leadership skills that the scouting program is attempting to help young people learn. And all that time you were doing other sports as well. It was baseball, basketball, football, correct? Yeah, you asked if I, so I always enjoyed sports. My dad played football in college, a small school called Southern Oregon College where my older brother eventually played football as well some 30 years later. And so we were always doing sports. We, I played all three, like you said, basketball, football, baseball. Football was my favorite, although oh. in any given time, I loved whatever sport I was playing. But the one that I played most of the year was football. So basketball was really only played during basketball season, baseball during baseball season, and the rest was all football. When did you realize that you were good? At what? <laughs> at life. No. At life. <laughs> at baseball. Oh, geez. Good at baseball. I threw hard when I was young. Okay. So inherently you're going to be good if you throw hard yes. most kids are scared of you and but 
I would never consider myself good. I probably thought I was good at baseball when I was at Stanford, honestly. Like at 21 years old was the first time I ever really had good success where I was beating good teams and good players and, and pitching consistently. So probably strange to say that, but I had success growing up, but I just never thought I was that good at it. I just thought I threw hard, mm -hmm. which gave me the advantage. Yeah, it does when you're that age, for sure. Now you started at BYU, you did a year there and then transferred to Stanford. You guys, we got a smarty pants on our hands right here. <laughs> Stanford is extremely hard to get into. So I got to toot your horn a little bit there. And you studied soci sociology while you were yeah. there, correct? Well, the best way to get into any school is to be really good at a sport Okay. Um, for the most part. And they start paying for school too. So That's you, true. you get in and on top of that, they give you money to get in. So that was probably my greatest asset. I did work hard in school. I was a straight A student. I was a valedictorian, but I wasn't super intelligent. I just, uh, you guys, I don't believe this. No, I'm telling you, if you're watching this, if you want to get good grades, I believe most students have the capacity to sure. do it. Now, granted, there are some that no matter how much you study, the information doesn't, you can't retain it super well, but I, I was smart. But what I did is I really worked hard. Yeah. And so I didn't even take a lunch break during my entire high school career. I would always go for my high school years. I would go to the teachers and because I played sports, I would have to go in before school and get help. And I took some hard classes. And so I just, I made a goal. That's really what it came down to. I had a plan and a goal to be a straight A student in high school. And so everything I did fed into that. How was I going to accomplish that goal? I needed to, to work extra hard. I needed to be prepared. And I think in some cases I probably wasn't deserving of an A, but the teacher recognized the effort. And I think that's important for students to know as well. If you give a good effort, a lot of times the difference can be made up by someone that's understanding or cares about you. And so I had really, you know, fantastic teachers at my high school. And that paved the way along with the 98 mile an hour fastball to be able to go to Stanford. Yes. But I think I think independent of 98 miles per hour, I probably still would have ended up at a good school, but not Stanford good. So studying sociology, what did you what was your interest in? Like if you say in another world you didn't get drafted, didn't play baseball, like what would you have done with that? I wanted to work at Nike. So sociology cool. is the study of interaction yeah. amongst people. And so I had classes. Well, this is, you know, people that really, really know me know that I love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And, and this is, I'll tell you why. One of my sociology classes was about relationships. And so we had to watch season one of The Bachelor. And this is, oh my gosh, what's the guy's name? I don't even remember the contestant's name, but I know faces yeah. but nonetheless i can't remember his name but we had to study and dissect that entire episode that entire season and from there on i was very interested in the bachelor and bachelorette and maybe because of what i learned but also you know just learning about the people and seeing how it all went down so i had a class like that i had a negotiation class which was really really fun you would be given a task of what you needed to get out of the deal and each each of the two sides had something they needed to get. And then there was a gray area and it was really essentially who could get the most out of the gray area to see who won. And we read this really cool book called The Art of Negotiation. Yes, great book. So that was kind of the plan if you didn't, you know, excel in baseball, but you did and you were a first round draft pick. Did you know that, you, I mean, you kind of know when you're going to get picked high, like what was the process like in your head of like, this is what I'm going to do and this is the path I'm going to take. How are you feeling as like a 21 year old kid? Well, it's probably unfair just to jump to that draft. I was drafted three times. I was drafted in high school at 18 years old. I was drafted as a sophomore at 22 and I was drafted again at 23 years old, which is when I signed. Okay. And so um, you always have somewhat of an idea if you're going to get drafted because teams talk to you. Mm -hmm. They come visit you. They came to my house in high school. They visited me in college. The second time I was drafted, which was, the first time was the New York Mets. The second time was the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the last time was the Cleveland Indians at the time. And so 
you know what's going to happen because of the conversations. I anticipated being a first-round draft pick with Cleveland, which was a, a huge accomplishment. I felt really fulfilled and grateful that I had gotten to that point, especially at 23 years old. And so it was very different in those days. All it was was a phone call, mm -hmm. and you really couldn't follow it. Maybe on the Internet you could follow. I didn't. I just waited for my phone call, and they called me in my dorm room and said, hey, we picked you with the 22nd pick. We look forward to speaking with you. We want to bring you out to Cleveland and announce that we've drafted you and hopefully get to announce to the world that we signed you to a contract. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So why did it feel right at that time? I mean, I'm assuming the first two times you didn't you weren't picked high enough to, you know, of what you wanted. So then you just reenter and they pick you. But obviously it felt right this time. The first round, you can't get much better than well, that. It actually makes me think of something funny. My, I was in the College World Series in Omaha yeah. as a junior or as a sophomore. And there was this All-American pitcher that was a senior. And he was speaking, his dad was speaking to my dad. And as a senior, he was drafted, I think, in the third or fourth round, which was really good. And he told my dad, now we feel like it's the right time to sign. And my dad's like, well, when else would you sign? You're a senior. Like, you have no other option. Yeah. <laughs> so I probably felt the same way at 23 years old as a junior. I really didn't have any other time. That might be the oldest first round draft pick ever. I don't know. I tried to verify that, so I can't say it for sure. But um, if it was ever going to happen, it needed to happen then. Why didn't it happen the first two times? The first time was very different. I had goals in life, like I talked about with grades. I wanted to be a missionary for my church, the mm -hmm. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I needed to do that at 19 years old. Uh -huh. I wanted to do that. And so I tried my best to negotiate a contract that would allow me to both be a missionary for two years from 19 to 21 and then come back and begin my career then as a baseball player. And the GM at the time, Steve Phillips, said that's not an option. Mm -hmm. And so he made me choose between one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I made the choice to go to college for a year and then go and be a missionary. And I did that in Spain. So my heart, you know, I love Spain. Anyone who knows me knows I talk about Spain. I visit as often as I possibly can. And those two years were really formative and they really made me a much better baseball player. In addition, and more importantly, a better person. And I think just a better husband, father, friend in every way. And so that's what those two years did for me. And then the second time when I was drafted in the third round, I was really far away from graduating at Stanford. I was still not even a sophomore because of the, all the credits that I lost yeah. when I went to Spain and transferred from BYU. And so at that point, the money was good. The draft position was the third round. That was good, but I just felt like I could do better. And I felt like I wanted to get closer to graduation. So I went back one more year. All right, let's take a quick break here. Oh my gosh, that's so impressive. All of that. So when you did, were doing your mission for two years, a standard mission is two years, were you not playing at all during that time? I didn't know. I didn't take a glove. I didn't play catch for two years. And so I didn't do push-ups. I don't think. I didn't run. I walked a lot. I walked about eight miles a day talking to people in the streets, but that was it. Gutsy, that's insane. That's crazy. You took a two-year break and then you come back and you're just like, oh, I think yeah. I'll go to the first round now. Like, <laughs> no, I had to go to the third round okay, first, but well, then the still. first round. Yeah. No, I think, you know, I tell kids all the time, if... If someone tells you you can't accomplish something, number one, you can, and you should believe that. And, and for everyone, it's different, right? Some people have a strong faith in a God. Others have strong faith in other things. But if you believe in what you believe, you can know that anything can happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's what I attribute. I don't attribute it to myself. I just feel like it was in the plan for me and that if I could do my best in, in everything that I was trying to do, that it would all work out. And it has and it did. And so I'm really grateful. and. Uh, I still attribute that two years off and my time in high school where I didn't throw a whole bunch as a pitcher to helping me stay healthy throughout my 15-year career. I never went on the DL. 
um, except for a bicycle accident that I had, which was unrelated. But I think all of those things helped me in the long run as well, physically. Yeah, that's crazy. That's insane. So you made finally made your debut in 2004. And you've done a lot of different things. You played in the World Baseball Classic in 2009. Like you've done so many cool things. You were a part of some really, really successful teams here with the Royals. Like it's just to, to soak that all in, you've really accomplished so much. And I know you were talking, you took, was it your son to the um, All-Star game? And I heard you making a joke yesterday that, oh, I never made it there as a player. <laughs> And you didn't, but still, you have done so many cool things. You were um, in the College World Series and also in like the MLB World Series. It's impressive. It's yeah, so impressive. Well, I appreciate that. It's, you know, I'm really grateful for all of it when people ask, oh, you pitched game seven, you lost. How did you feel afterward? The one word that comes to my mind is grateful. Um, how many other pitchers have pitched a game seven? I think we know the answer. It's like 76 or 78 of us have done that, started a game seven, but. Um, I'm just grateful for all of the opportunities that came my way and tried to make the most of them. I think that's what I tried my best to do. Wherever I was, wherever I am still, to try to maximize it and and really take as much out of it as you can and enjoy it to the maximum. I went to an all-star game when I was 10 years old in Anaheim. I saw Bo Jackson hit the leadoff home run off Rick Rushel, and I saw Wade Boggs hit the second home run. And so I was there as a 10-year-old in the upper deck in the old uh, Anaheim Stadium. And so my son at 12 years old now has memories of getting to watch, you know, uh, J-Rod hit 41 home runs in the Home Run Derby and then see the All-Star game in Seattle. Yeah, what a memory he's got too. Take us back to yesteryear and, and take us back to those pivotal games. I mean, I think being a starting pitcher in general, you got your day comes around every five days or whatever the rotation is. It's, it's your day on the mound and you kind of just got to zone in and, and do your job. So I think there's a lot of pressure on any given Tuesday or random day when you're on the mound, but to be in those high stakes situations, take us back to what that's like in a mental capacity and how you're going about your, your thing. Yeah, so when I was young, um, you know, people asked, did I get nervous? And the answer is no, I never really got nervous in baseball. And I think that's a function of a couple of things. Um, number one, you have to have talent, but I think what's the root of talent? It's work it's work ethic, it's preparation. And so a way to reduce any nerves or, or kind of concern when you go into competition, whether that's athletic or whether that might be musical or otherwise, there's all kinds of competition that we have in our lives, right? Maybe we want to do the best we can on a test or make friends, make a good impression with someone. It's about preparation. So figure out what would best help you prepare for that. Put a lot of time and effort into that and then just try to relax as best you can once you get into that moment that you're preparing for. And I felt that way about my baseball career, whether it was game seven or whether it was an opening day or whether it was just a start in the middle of May. I tried my best to prepare in the days leading up so that I could trust that I was going to do the best I could do. And so that's one thing that's really, really super important to me in my life is recognizing that real true success is not the outcome of your performance or your, your actions, whatever you're doing. The true success is, is having a plan and then committing yourself to doing everything in that plan that then puts you in the best spot to succeed or to have the outcome that you desire. And then also accepting it, whether win, lose or draw, whatever happens, say, I did the best I was capable of doing and I can be happy with that. And that for me is success. Success is the peace of mind, as John Wooden said, that is the result of self-satisfaction and knowing you did your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. Yeah. It's there's a saying that's like when you're fruitful in the or faithful in the small things, then you can be faithful in, in the bigger things. And I think that what you're hitting on the preparation and the aspect of it, putting in like that little work day after day and having it amount to really big things like being in the World Series at Game 7. Can you tell us what your emotions were? What do you remember like feeling? What do you remember about that moment? I mean, it's still 
so much of the 14 and 15 season stand out so much to our fans here as pivotal moments that they they remember where they were watching the game they yeah. remember like moments from that so i want to hear from you what do you remember from that game um i remember probably going back to game six that was memorable ventura pitched an incredible game and we all remember him and you know bless his family and, and his memory and the domination that he had and just the way the team won that game so we knew there was a game seven 24 hours ahead of time, right? Because the way the, the offense hit the ball and the way he was pitching. Um, when the game was over, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, Jeff Miller. We hung out in the dugout afterward. And we were there till most of the people had cleared out of the stadium. And I remember one of the reporters saying, you know, tomorrow's game seven. Don't you got to get home and rest up? And I told him, I said, you know what? This is what I would do on any other game if I had a friend here. I'm not treating it any different. Tomorrow's game seven, but I'm, it's not like I'm gonna run home and go to bed at 11.30 and be asleep. I'm gonna stay up and watch Sports Center 100 different times and probably fall asleep at 2 a.m. anyhow. So <laughs> I'm doing what I do. So I hung out with Jeff and we just prepared. And then the next morning I did what I'd always did, which has been documented, but I mowed my lawn, which was important. You gotta have a good, clean lawn. And that was a big yard. We lived at the National in Parkville. And so I had to mow that in the, in the morning. Then I had to go get my Chipotle, my chicken bowl, uh, or no, sorry. Yeah, chicken bowl with a little vinaigrette sauce, which is key, as well as chips to dip it in. And then I went to the field and I cut my hair. So I have to mow the grass. I have to mow my hair and then go out and pitch. So I was um, I was caught off guard by the amount of fans that were there early. I don't know if they opened the gates earlier than normal or if it was when they always opened them. But certainly in a regular game, fans don't show up until, you know, 645, 7 o'clock, even after the game begins. But in this one, when I went out to warm up it, whatever time it was, 45 minutes before the game, the fans were packed in. They were already like chanting and screaming. And so that was a little bit different feel. That made me a little bit unsettled. And once I got on the mound, I really did feel like the stadium was spinning around me. It was a little bit disconcerting. But when I threw the first pitch, I, in my mind, I said, I've never had a problem throwing strikes. Just please be near the glove. Don't hit the backstop. Don't hit the net. Don't throw it over the catcher's head throw it near his glove, and I did. It was a strike, and at that point, everything just kind of disappeared. All the nerves were gone, and it was like any other game. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, like, the buzz and everyone being there so early. Kansas City people love their Royals. They love their sports teams, and that people think back so fondly during that time. It's so special to us. And you got to experience some of that, you know, just recently. You were here for Locaine Night. And you were a part of that, and he's so beloved, like Gordo. Everyone is so beloved from that time period. Um, and for you to, you're forever a part of that. You're forever like in the hearts of you know the fans who brought that special time here to Kansas City. What does that mean to you? Well, I think when you step away from it, you recognize. I think in the moment, just like anyone, you can take it for granted. And whether you're a fan, a player, or someone in the front office or a coach, um, that's always a risk for any human to take it for granted. So coming back now and seeing Locaine have his celebration as he retired and just having fans come up to you and their parents, essentially it puts kids in a bunch of weird positions. I've seen, I don't know how many parents say, you were like three years old when, when this guy was pitching and it was such a big deal when he took you to the World Series game and the kid's like, I kind of care, but I don't really care, dad. <laughs> but it's really just the dad or the mom that's yeah. so excited. But you realize that it just had a monumental impact on their lives and as I reflect on it, it had a monumental impact on me and my family. And so being here, they'll never forget, right? Yeah. The, the, I think the slogan that year, if I'm not mistaken, was, was it Forever Royal in 15 or was Forever Royal the next year? I don't know. I'm not sure. Do we know the years on those? Yeah, we, we can. Was it Forever Royal, Stephen? What do we got? 15, Wait. 15 was Forever Royal. 15 was Forever Royal. Forever so Royal. 
you know, I, I feel like that is as alive and well and real as any theme this, this organization has ever had. And uh, I feel forever royal, and I feel that connection with millions of people that are forever royal. Oh, my gosh. We need to change the topic before I start tearing up. It's just so <laughs> sweet to hear you say that back and to have your admiration. It's just beaming from you, so I love that. Let's pause for a word from our sponsors. I want to hear some about where your love from sneak of sneakers came from because you are a sneakerhead in the fullest sense. I am. I take great I take great satisfaction in when someone says you're the original sneakerhead of baseball. I don't know if I am or not, but I like when people hey, have said that. Well, let's do it right here. <laughs> yeah, we're we're yeah. dubbing him in this room. Yeah. You got our vote. Um, so I I have a pair of signed CC Sabathia Air Jordan 11 cleats. And he put on there to the OG of sneakers in MLB. So, I mean, Sabathia is... Oh, my God, that's an honor. He's up there. In yeah. fact, he's probably higher than me. He's on the Rushmore of sneakerheads, if you will. And one of the all-time greats on the mound, as well as one of the first Jordan athletes. So, is an awesome guy all the way around, and, and I respect him so much. So, to have him say that means a lot. But I remember sneakers when I was young. My, my first recollection of caring about sneakers was when I was seven years old. My brother was a... a uh, a ninth grader at Joe Lane Junior High in Roseburg, Oregon, and the school colors were red, white, and black. And that was either the first or second year of the Air Jordan 1 because he wore it for two seasons. And their team all wore the Air Jordan 1. And it just looked so classy. The, the, the standard Chicago colorway, the white, red, and black. And I said, I want a pair of those. And so I got a little small pair from when I was seven years old. And in those days, the, the GS sizes or the kid sizes said Sky Jordan instead of Air Jordan on the wings. And so that was my very first pair of shoes that I really cared about. My Probably my first non-Payless shoe source pro wings, which is what I wore forever. I used to wear, if you're my age, 44, or around that age, they used to sell pro wings with these little turf knobby bottoms. And for whatever reason, I thought those were the greatest shoes. So I wore pro wings turfs for like six consecutive years, sprinkled in with this Air Jordan 1 Sky Jordan. And so it started there. And... Once I learned about who Michael Jordan was, the sneaker became more than just a sneaker, but it represented an approach to life. It represented um, being a champion. It represented blood, sweat, and tears. It represented so much. And so I became a Michael Jordan fan, which inherently made me a Nike fan. Mm -hmm. And being from Oregon, that was already probably in my blood. And so from that time forward, I was fortunate enough to get a couple more Air Jordans. I got an Air Jordan 7 um, when I was in eighth grade. I got an Air Jordan 11 when I was a, a junior in high school and I kept all those shoes. I have all of my originals still. So my 1989 or my 1991 Air Jordan 7s are obliterated. I ended up getting a pair of Jordan 4s from my brother, kept those. And they're literally falling apart, but I still have them. And I have my Air Jordan 11s that I wore, my white, black, my white, black Concords. And um, yeah, not to bore you, but that's where, that's where it all comes from, from seeing it on my brother's yeah. feet with his team to watching Michael Jordan become a champion, to wanting just to represent the brand and the sneakers the best way I could. Yeah, you're so, you have such a collection and you're truly like passionate about it. Like it's, I know some people like, um, maybe have them as like a sign of status or something, but you can tell, cause I'll go up and ask you and I'll just be like, tell me about these shoes. And you have like a soliloquy about each pair you wear. And I don't think I've seen you wear the same pair twice when you come here. Like, no, I haven't, you're right. Um, my goal when I took on the broadcasting job, I knew I'd do around 50 games. I said, I'm never going to wear the same shoe twice. So 
here I am here on you day are. whatever, day 30 of my job and new pair of shoes today too. Yeah, you have a story for like each of them and like tell me specific little things. And sometimes it'll be like the same design, but it'll be like a different color, whatever it is. And you'll like, it'll be the littlest difference and you'll like point it out and I'll be like, He's right. Like that is the difference. Like it's crazy. You are very much like you can tell you're passionate about it. And it's such a cool <laughs> thing. My wife said one of my favorite lines ever. My wife once said, Jeremy knows no more about sneakers than I know about anything. Oh. <laughs> and I think that might actually be true, although she's very intelligent and, uh, and puts a lot of time into a lot of things. But she said, I know more about sneakers than she knows about anything in this world. What does your collection look like? Uh, it looks beautiful. It's very colorful. Um, I've gotten into a lot. Lately, I've gotten into Kobe's. Um, okay. They're going to start retroing Kobe's again for the first time in a few years. But I love bright colors. I just bought a pair of blue ones that were made for Devin Booker for the Olympics when he wore those uh, last Olympic Games. And they're just they're shiny and beautiful and I bought some purple ones and some red ones so I like colors more than I used to like colors yeah and I've asked you before too some some shoes you know unbeknownst to me because I'm just a regular person when it comes to shoes but some shoes are not for wearing some no. shoes are only for being looked at well I remember you telling a lot me of this. people would not prescribe to that some of the big you know some people really profess wear your sneakers and I I would like that as well but I also have thousands so I don't yes. wear them or hundreds so I don't wear them all um, but yeah, some shoes are worth a lot of money. And so it's like, do you want to wear them or not wear them? Because once you wear them, it's like a new car. Once yep. you take it off the lot, it's not a new car any longer. So um, at some point, you can't wear all your shoes. And so they are an investment. So maybe it's not wise to wear them one time and decrease the value. But maybe they just stay on the wall as like a, a showpiece. Yeah, it's like women in purses, I feel like maybe. I'm not a big purse person, <laughs> but I know some people have like purses and it's like, oh, you don't use that one. Like you just look at it. <laughs> I've never heard that. The purses, yeah, that's interesting, but why not? I mean, yeah, you don't use it. You, you just look at it. If you collect something, there's always the chance that you're never going to use it. Yes. You're just going to look at it and admire it. What is your most prized sneaker? Uh, probably the Air Jordan 9 cleat that I bought. I actually got this from the clubhouse manager in Chicago. And at the time when he was younger, he worked for Michael Jordan specifically. He was in charge of washing Michael's Corvette and buying McDonald's for Michael and the team. And wow. the, those, those, that's what he said were his biggest responsibilities. I had to make sure that Michael's Corvette was clean and I had to go get all the McDonald's when he wanted to buy food for the guys. And so he held on to these for a number of years and he knew my passion for sneakers. And so one time he said, hey, I wanna show you a pair and just see if you're interested. You know, I have kids that are getting older, they're going to college, I've held on, on to these for a lot of years. I think I'm ready to part with them. And so they are signed by Michael Jordan. They have two zeros on the back instead of the 45, which he wore because they were the very first pair given to him when he didn't have a number assigned. Nike didn't know what he was gonna wear. So they said, well, we'll just put double zero on the heel first until you get your number. And that's when he got his new ones. He told uh, this clubhouse worker, he said, take these, get rid of them. I don't need them anymore. He actually said, go throw them away. Oh, and, the, oh, and the guy was smarter than that. He yes. said, he said, okay, Michael, I'll go throw them away. Yeah. And then he came back the next day and said, will you please sign them? And Michael said, I should have just thrown them away myself and signed them reluctantly yeah. and then gave them back to him. Oh and my so gosh. that's my most prized pair of shoes, I think. Because I retired from sneaker collecting back in 14, but I came out of retirement like two weeks later. And oh. People call my bluff on that retire all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, I don't buy it. You know, another thing that you retired from baseball, but you still play. Most recently, you've been playing for like with the Savannah Bananas. Yeah. How did you get hooked up with them? And I mean, you're still pitching. You're still doing stuff. I am. Um, yeah, retirement, maybe that's not a good word for it's me. It's really not Not for in my you. vocabulary. No. Um, 
it goes back to November. The Alumni Association, so the Major League Baseball Players Alumni Association, made an agreement with Savannah to play three games against them, and they were soliciting players. They said, who wants to come pitch? And I had not pitched or thrown a baseball really at all in five years since I retired in 2017, but I was the first to raise my hand. I'll pitch for you guys and play against the Bananas, and my wife had already introduced me to the Bananas, and we had been following them, so we were excited about it. So I started playing catch with my good friend, former teammate with the Baltimore Orioles, Brian Burris. He's an Oregonian and Portland guy. We played catch every day in November, December, January, and I was feeling good. And so I pitched in March against the Bananas. It went pretty well, and my arm felt good. I threw three innings, like 65 pitches, and I said, well, the next game's in April, so I guess I can't stop throwing. I have to keep throwing. So mm -hmm. I kept throwing, and then through to high school teams, through to friends, through to anyone that would ever want to be thrown to. And now I'm four games deep in the Savannah Bananas career. I pitched here in Kansas City with the Bananas. So that's yep. even more fun than pitching against the Bananas. And uh, I, I throw sometimes to the Royals hitters. Yep. And uh, I have a game this Friday, um, Friday, July 21st against the, well, I think it's against the party animals, but it's in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Okay. So. So I stay in, they get me my number, I got a jersey, I got a Bananas jersey, and frankly, people probably know me more now as a Bananas pitcher as than, a bananas. As, than anything else, because I'm too old to be recognized as a Royals pitcher outside of Kansas You're City. You're not too old. Outside of KC, no one, no one probably recognizes me, but if I tell them the Bananas, they get really, they go Bananas if I tell them of I course, pitch for them. Of course, of course, they're onto something there. It's They're doing a great job, and it's fun that you can still pitch I, like you said you still got it you know if you can still do it and have fun with it like why the heck not you know got it means you do. I, I can still throw it over the plate yes you do and not have my arm fall off I so yes you, i do got it i see you pitch to some of our our guys sometimes and you you i mean you look like a player out there to me so i, I think you're doing great and i think it's good that you get to stick stick with it and they're doing such a fun thing with baseball there so that's awesome now you this year are newly back with the organization in the broadcast role i want to talk about that more because you know, being here as a player is one thing. To come back in the broadcast role, um, what's that been like? I mean, there's some things I'm sure that are just like yesterday. You yeah. know what I mean? Coming back to Kauffman Stadium, coming into into the clubhouse, things like that. Even some of the people, you know, Davy and some of those people who've been here forever. Um, what's it been like coming back, but in this new role? Number one, is it just so great to be around baseball? to see, like you said, whether it's staff members, coaches, players. There's not many players that still play since I've last played, but, um, you know, Salvi's one guy still here in Kansas City, and there's a few sprinkled around the league, but um, it's it's just fun to be around the game. I think that's what first impacted me, and now I get to watch the game, and I have to watch the game with a lot more intent and be prepared. I need to know things about the opposing team, certainly need to know things about what's happening with the Kansas City Royals, and so that's been great to invest and kind of follow the game more closely than I have since I retired, and um, just baseball is such a big family and so much fun that I just feel like I'm back with my family. When I, I was down in Houston, for example, and a friend of mine in Houston saw me go up and talk to Dusty Baker, who was my last manager for my one big league game with the Washington Nationals, and Pedro Grafal was there. They opened against Houston. It was opening weekend down in April in, in, in Houston. And so I get to see Pedro, and a few players came over and said hi to me, and he looked at me and said, you are just in your element once again. He says, you are back where you belong, being in baseball and being around all these baseball people. And that's what it's felt like. Uh, when it comes to the broadcast team, Ryan Lefevre is, I consider, one of the best in the game. Mm -hmm. And so even listening to him as a player, 
there. You can imagine like that would be fun to work with him. He's so witty. He's really sarcastic, really a dry sarcasm that I love. Um, and HUD's so welcoming, so passionate. And I get to work with Joel Goldberg, who there's no one better at, at what he does. Um, his on-field reporting, his pre and post game and Monty helps me out a ton. So I'm just a part of a group of guys, uh, not to mention my radio partners, Jake Eisenberg and Eric Guthrie and Steve Stewart. These guys are all awesome and they make it really easy for me. So I'm learning. I'm, I'm, I consider myself not very good at what I do, but I like to do it and I'm willing to try to get better. So I, I think you're being a little too harsh of a critic. I think, I think it's definitely different going from playing and then with broadcasting, there's so much of like explaining and, and giving like uh, critiques or, or even just giving insight to the fans. So it's definitely different. And when we had Monty on to talk to him, he said the same thing, that there was a transition for him, but that it just takes repetition and, and getting used to it. But he, he also is just such a baseball guy and the nuts and bolts of baseball he loves. And I can see that same thing from you. And so it just takes time to refine that. But I can tell you this much, our fans have, have loved like having you back and, and hearing your voice and just having you as part of the broadcast. I know that they've really loved that, having you back and that part that you bring to the table. So give yourself some credit. You're doing great. It, it takes time and we're, we're happy to have you back. And, and it's nice to have your voice there. And even to see you on the sidelines down in the dugout, I think the guys relate to you in a different way because you were a former player not that long ago. Yeah. So I know you have that relationship with them that that can be really helpful and, and you can just connect with them on a different level. Now, I know that you travel a lot and you've done a lot of really you, like you, I'm not even just saying like to Florida or to Texas or like you traveled the world. Why is travel such an important like thing to you? And is there any place you've traveled to that you like want you haven't traveled to, but you want to get to? Yeah. So let me. Uh, Pa travel might be my greatest passion. Yes. I really love travel and I love meeting people. This all started when I was a missionary. It was the first time I really left, let's say North America, because I'd been to Canada before. Um, but I, I lived in Spain for two years and didn't speak the language at all. Didn't know anything about Spain. Thought it was going to be like Mexico, like any other ignorant kid from Oregon. And it wasn't, you know, <laughs> Spain is, is very much Europe and very different from those other cultures. But I just learned to appreciate the differences. I learned to appreciate the language and I love speaking Spanish. I speak it almost every single day since I learned it 24 years ago. Um, and so being there for two years, it just became a part of me. So when I returned and kind of got back into college and then was given other chances to travel, I jumped on it. And so most of it came through baseball. Baseball facilitated travel around the world. I, For baseball reasons, I have been to 25 countries, I think and either pitched in those countries or taught baseball or been part of some program that was related to baseball and sports. And so I've been to places like Nigeria, some of the more surprising ones. People say, oh, you've been to Colombia or if you've been to Dominican for baseball, that doesn't surprise me. But Nigeria is a really unique one. Um, I pitched in Australia. Mm -hmm. I have been to um, all of Europe, really, you know, from the Netherlands to Italy to Spain. Um, but I think one of the more impressive ones, one of the more unique ones was Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. And I went there this year and Bulgaria has a really amazing story about baseball. And uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but it comes down to their relationship with Cuba oh. 40 years ago and they would do student exchanges. And some of the students who went to Cuba, you know, fell in love with baseball and brought it back to Bulgaria. And so baseball in Bulgaria has really nice roots with some real great passion. The players over there love the game. They play softball and baseball. And that was a total surprise to me. So I think I just love being places where, you know, 
you have to respect and honor the people who are from there and depend on them and learn a lot about them, learn about their culture and their food and, their, and just the way they live their lives. And that to me is, is something that really fills my cup and just gets me excited about things. Yeah, you know, I was t prepping for this um, this interview, and I was telling some coworker, I was like, "Yeah, he's he's a really big traveler too." And they're like, "Oh, like we're," and I was like, "No, he like the world." Like I think sometimes when you say like traveling, people are like, "Oh, he went to Mexico, went to Cancun, goes to Cancun every year or something like that." And I'm like, "No, this guy travels the world like constantly." Um, doing this types of things. And I, I totally agree. It gives you perspective on your life, what you have, but it also just gives you a chance to see how the rest of the world operates and how they think of things and different food. Yeah. Dance. I love the food. The food for me, I will eat anything. In fact, the weirder it is, the more I'm excited about it. All so right. first time we went to Paris um, years ago, my wife and I, I had met a friend who gave me all of these things. Pretty much she gave me a checklist, do this, see this, eat this. And so we just went through and checked off as many as we could in three days. And one of the things was, I can't pronounce it, but it was called Andouillette de Trois. It was essentially like, it was a meat. And I asked the person, I said, how is Andouillette de Trois? And like, well, they tried to, they re, they re told me what it was, but they, you know, what is the word? Um, translated the word yeah. and told me. And they, I said, would I like that? And they said, no, we don't recommend that. <laughs> And I said, why not? And they said, it's really for, uh, it's an old food for shepherds that live in the mountains. And it's not something that tourists usually like to eat. And I said, I'll take it. Yeah. And so it was this weird sausage and it really smelled like um, a farm oh. and all the ingredients of what you would smell on a farm, especially if you were close to animals that had just eaten. It smelled a lot like that. And um, I looked at it and said, that just smells terrible. My wife says, it is terrible. Send it back, get something better. I said, I'm going to eat it. And so I started eating it one bite at a time and I got about halfway through and she's never not seen me complete a meal. And I tapped out And halfway through. I said, I'm out. I can't eat this any longer. And, uh, I gave up on it. And so it was the worst thing I've ever had in my life. What but was it? It was just sausage stuffed with a bunch of things. And I don't know a bunch of things. if I had to guess it was stuffed with cow pie and intestines and brain yeah. that's what it tasted like a good combination of the three uh you know when i'm traveling i always say when in doubt do as the locals do but yeah. if the locals were, were telling you you're nuts maybe you should rethink yeah that. the locals i i wasn't talking to shepherds on the mountain with yeah. their sheep i was talking to a, a nice guy at the restaurant and probably should have went with his his recommendation i was gonna say he tried to steer you right and you didn't listen yeah. but the food is good so i love food anywhere we just went to cambodia this past year oh, amazing thailand cambodia vietnam and um myanmar love and it the food over there was just did you go see angkor wat yes we did incredible i've also been there oh you've it's, been there yeah oh, it was amazing isn't it fascinating beautiful it's kind of hard to wrap your your brain around yeah, all you of really it, can't honestly yeah well, let's get to our lightning round. We could talk about traveling and all this other stuff forever, but these lightning round questions are hard-hitting journalism. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Let's go. What is your coffee order? I don't drink coffee. Oh my gosh, stop. Yes, super easy. Look at that. Passed right through it. How do you get up in the morning? I open my eyes, um, brush my teeth, usually. Okay. A uh, cup of water, and I'm ready to go. Wow, that's so healthy. I don't even need sleep. My wife says I don't need sleep, and she's right. I just don't need it. Really? Never needed it. How many hours of sleep a night do you get? Depends. Anywhere between three and six. What? But a few, I mean, when, when you travel all over the world, like at one point I traveled to Bulgaria, I flew home, I did three games on the broadcast and flew back to Spain for a week. And I think I slept like a total of 10 hours and six days one time and just make it work, you know? Gutsy, three to six. That's a nap for me. I know. That's you a just, nap. You just need air and water. If you had air and water, you can live in this world. I and so that's all I'm looking for. No politely coffee. Politely disagree. No, no. Coffee's not even needed. <laughs> Try it. Just air and water. That's all you need. Just like your car. All right. Yeah. That's all you need. All right. There you go. 
All right, you can only wear one pair of sneakers for the rest of your life. Which one are you going with? Presto off-white Nikes. Okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm taking your word that those are really legit. Household chore that you hate. Cleaning toilets. Ugh, word, I hear that. Some place you want to visit that you haven't already. I think I already asked you. What did you, end, what did you end up telling us? I want to go to South Africa. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, teammate that has left a lasting impression on you. Many, uh, but let me go with James Shields. Okay. Do you want to tell us why? I just love, I love Shields. He came over and I feel like he changed my approach to winning and to playing the game of baseball. But I feel like overall he changed the entire organizational's approach and the whole team. And uh, he was a polarizing figure. Be, and I think leaders have to be that way. Leaders are polarizing. They have to be loud. They have to be convicted. And not everyone wants someone to push you that way. But I have no doubt in my mind that he helped lead us to what we accomplished in 2014. And even when he was gone in 15, I think his impact and what the traditions he helped us form led us to a World Series in 2015. And granted, you don't take anything away from the players and the performances and the coaches, but I think our minds were completely altered by the way he lived his life and the way he led our team. That's so cool. Tell us a movie you can watch over and over again. Serendipity. That's such a good movie. The best. It's John my favorite. John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale. Yes. A little known fact, by the way. Do you know they spent time filming together? It was like less than a day and a half that they actually filmed together on set in New York. No way. And if you think about it, they spent time on the park bench and Bloomingdale's and Serendipity. Yeah. And you know they you know they filmed Bloomingdale's and Serendipity just back to back because yeah. they're so close to each other. And then the park bench. And they're never together otherwise. Well, you're right. Because they're, yeah. they're trying to get their way back to each other. Yeah. Really good movie if you guys haven't seen it. It's a chick flick. I'm surprised. It is. Rom-com. Big rom-com guy. Oh, right. Um, how good is Jeremy Piven, though, in that in that movie as <laughs> so well? So good. My favorite scene in the entire movie, two of them. Number one, when he kicks the snow and he has to apologize to the person that walks by him when, yes. when his dream girl, like, you know, leaves. And then the second part is when they're in the um, the social security office mm -hmm. trying to get information on Sarah, yeah. trying to learn where she is. And, and John Cusack just learns over, tell him why he's wrong. And he goes into this big, long spiel about how he's trying to protect the yes. pro-terror, pro no, I can't even say the word, but yeah. it's really funny. Yes. So, no, great movie. Serendipity is a classic. You got to yeah. go watch it. I agree. Uh, what is playing in your car? Music, podcast, what are you listening to? Right now, um, good question. Jeez, what is playing in my car? Probably Amy Shark or Taylor Swift as I prepare for the big concert this weekend. Yes, respect. Yes. Yeah. All right, last question is the best question. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? Oh, um just focus on relationships more and that's still a challenge for me i can you know it's it's easy to meet someone new but really diving into the relationships and getting to know people and, and keeping those alive i feel like i do it well sometimes but i would love to do it even better and so i think um i would tell myself enjoy the ride and enjoy it invest with the people you get to go on the ride with amazing Gutsy, thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show you're a great baseball player but you're an even better person and I wholeheartedly believe that 100%. And I think everyone else who comes in contact with you also believes that as well. Well, I appreciate it. And honestly, to your point, it's not hard to be a better person than baseball player. Cause <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so I, I'll give you that one. I'm oh a my gosh, you guys <laughs> No, but Stop. you're very kind. I appreciate you having me on and thanks for, um, for, for this time together and for all the kind words. Thank you so much. Thank you, you guys, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I've been your host, Carrie Lippert Gillespie. Make sure you subscribe, tune in, because we'll be back with more episodes all the time. We'll see you again very soon.